be a, before I get started tonight, um, just being a, a cognizant of uh, who's here and listening, uh, I probably will use, I will use some uh, Hebrew words, so, but I want to make sure that I translate everything I say. Well, actually, all of us want to try to make sure we do that if and when we use Hebrew words. So uh, if I say something that I forget to do that and, and, you, and you want to hear what it meant, just raise your hand and it'll just remind me to do that. So that would be helpful. I thought about, <clears throat> I did actually think about, I mean, I could do it without, I, I could do everything in translation and leave the Hebrew words out. Uh, but I also thought that uh, there are a few people in the room, really only a few probably, uh, for whom that will actually make it a little bit richer and a little bit deeper to hear words of Torah uh, quoted. Torah means the, the five books of Moses. Uh, to hear words from the Torah quoted in Hebrew, which is the original language it was written in, uh, for some people it helps uh, enrich the experience. So, but I do want to translate everything, so please let me know if I uh, miss anything that way. So the managers uh, gave me a, a sheet of paper. They record the talks uh, as part of a, a project with Dharma Seed that makes these talks available. So they gave me a sheet of paper that asked for a title for the talk and a description. And I realized that would be a good way to start uh, since uh, it uh, forced me to uh, say what it is I'm going to do. So the title for the talk is Obstacles to the Awareness of the Divine Presence. And I realized uh, in saying that, if I use words like that, I have to translate that. So just, like I, just like if I have to translate in Hebrew, because those words uh, don't mean the same thing to everybody. So it was a good thing that they asked for a description, too, because it uh, allowed the space to, tran to uh, translate that title into <clears throat> something that I hope you can all work with. So here's the description. In contemporary Jewish meditation, the divine is a reference to the interconnected unity of all being. This talk unfolds this metaphor and points out obstacles that occur in the small mind, and that's in quotations, uh, that aggrandizes the self and cuts one off from unity, compassion, and loving kindness. A set of practice instructions proposes processes to turn the obstacles into compost for spiritual growth. <laughs> so that's what I hope to talk about tonight. That's the uh, title and the purpose and uh, where I hope to be heading in the talk. So I came to a I came to a meditation practice, so a serious contemplative practice, uh, after I was al already ordained as a rabbi. So I was a rabbi first, then I'm, uh, I was running, in fact, I was running a Jewish spiritual retreat center, and I invited uh, Sylvia to come and teach at that center, and uh, because she was very close to a, a rabbi who was an important mentor of mine, Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi. So uh, Sylvia came, and uh, I heard Sylvia teach, and was... Uh, I heard Sylvia teach. I just see where you are, and uh, and uh, I was very moved by the teachings, and I was moved by the simplicity of the teachings and the practices that uh, uh, that you uh, shared the first time I heard. I remember hearing the teachings and thinking, "Oh, I could teach that. I really like that." That uh, uh, it very very much resonated. Uh, so I started working. I started uh, sitting initially with Sylvia and then other teachers. But I was already a rabbi. I mean, I, so I started my meditation practice uh, as a rabbi. And I was a, uh, I'd uh, been ordained uh, through the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. 
Uh, one of my teachers, Jacob, is here. And uh, I was also privately ordained by uh, Rabbi Shachter Shalomi. And uh, from, well, I'll refer to as Reb Zalman. And from Reb Zalman, uh, I, I had learned a, a particular approach to Judaism, which is generally talked about as, a, as Jewish mysticism. So I not only was a rabbi, but as a rabbi in uh, a contemporary, I'd say a, a contemporary Jewish mystical path. So the first time I sat on a meditation retreat and the teachers said, okay, now rest your attention on the arising and passing of the breath. I said, oh, yud heh vav mm -hmm. right? that, That's how I understood that. Words, I already had that framework. yud heh vav -he, those are Hebrew letters. I mentioned them last night, I believe. So Yud is like the letter Y in English, and He is like the letter H. Vav is like the letter V, and, and He again is in the name, uh, is like the letter H. So uh, these are the four letters that compose this uh, most special name. Is a name I talked about last night, the name that's uh, referred to as the great name, the Shmei Rabbah. So uh, those letters, those are the letters that compose that name. And I had already learned to look at, that, at those four letters. It's not, an, it's not a name, in the con, uh, that's what I was saying last night. It's not a name uh, like other names and concepts are. Uh, and it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a name that already hints at a fourfold process. Uh, and it's a process kind of name. I already mentioned yesterday that the root of that name is the Hebrew verb to be. But I want to go a little different direction now on the process. So the, the, uh, the name itself, uh, and I had learned this uh, as a mystical rabbi before I really learned to meditate. It was a, it was a meditative technique that I had learned. Uh, I had learned that this name, it really has encoded within it the breath. Because the letter He is in fact the sound right? So, so the, the, the breath is already contained and hinted at uh, in that name. And the letter He is there twice, if you heard me uh, saying that name. So it's Yud He Vav He. So the, that letter, that sound of breath, comes twice uh, because it is, it's the sound of the out-breath, but it's also the sound of the in-breath, the same sound. And uh, so Jewish mystics always understood that there was some sort of link between this name, this name yud heh vav -Hey, and the breath. And from the mystical point of view, and I don't want to expand on this uh, with a lot of time, but from the mystical point of view, the other two letters fall right into place that way. Yud is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. That's the, that's the first letter in that name. And the Jewish mystics understood it to, to be a placeholder or a representative for the concept of emptiness. So, uh, uh, so everything in a Jewish, from a Jewish mystical point of view arises out of emptiness and, in the, and returns into emptiness. So everything comes out of emptiness. That's the Yud. Yud represents then, in linking it to the breath, uh, you could consider it the place at the end of the out-breath and before the in-breath begins, when the lungs actually also get as small as they, they actually contract and get smaller and smaller as the air goes out, just like a balloon would. So, uh, so you could imagine that empty place is the yud, then you breathe in as a letter hey. Vav is just a straight line, the straightest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, it represents the concept of fullness. And so this name, rather than uh, uh, being just a concept, points to a process that you could describe as empty in, full out. So when, they, when, uh, when my teachers in the meditation world said, said pay attention to the breath arising and passing, they said, oh, you mean yud heh vav heh. That's, uh, as long as we're alive, every moment we're alive, we're, we're, uh, we're 
reenacting this name. That's what, to, to be alive from that perspective, from this Jewish mystical perspective, means to have that, that breath name happening. And, and when that name of God leaves you, then you're no longer alive. That's a, so that's how I sort of understood that. I, I came to my practices in that way. That, that name, yud heh vav uh, if, if you were to try to map this process, empty in, full out, it would look like this. Right? It's the basic wave nature, uh, the basic wave shape. A- em- empty comes into a peak, then it empties out, goes to a trough. So sort of empty in, full out. So it's the basic wave nature. Well, by the time I came to a, a meditation practice, uh, uh, which I learned primarily here at Spirit Rock initially, uh, I already had this, uh, this basic teaching about the name and, and a, a second parallel teaching that, that goes along with it, which is a, a, a teaching of the Baal Shem Tov, which means the master of the good name, but it, uh, that is a reference to a particular person who was the founder of Hasidic, of the, of Hasidic Jewry. Israel, Rabbi Israel, and he's called the master of the good name, the Baal Shem Tov, so people generally refer to him as the Baal Shem Tov. And he introduced into Judaism, uh, which was a new concept, this was not what Jews thought about the divine before the Baal Shem Tov, but from his time forward, uh, he introduced the idea that everything is God and nothing but God. So we take this sense of, of being, that this name for God is being, the Baal Shem Tov uh, says everything is part of that being. There's only there's only one being happening. Everything is everything is God, nothing but God. And there's a way of taking that uh, wave nature and saying, oh, there's a literal truth to that. This is everything that is, everything in the world of isness of existence, is composed of this basic wave pattern. Everything in in the world of matter. Uh, well now, so now we understand this from a scientific point of view as well. That matter and energy are are uh, on the same continuum, that matter is also basically made up of waves. So everything, everything that is, is in this pattern of empty in, full out. And to make it one level richer, and this is, a, this is what Sylvia made reference to this morning, but didn't make this explicit link that I'm making, is uh, she, when she talked about this morning about how when we breathe, we're actually co-breathing with the plants. She said something like that. If you take this Jewish metaphor, of, uh, of uh, being alive means having God's breath in you. It, it, it's, it's a literal teaching, too, that comes from uh, the book of Genesis. So in the book of Genesis, when it says God made human beings, that God formed human beings from the dust of the earth and then breathed into the dust of the earth. So then you have to ask, is that an in-breath or an out-breath? So there is no in-breath without an out-breath. There's no empty without a full. So when Sylvia made that reference this morning, uh, the, it's a reference that the plant kingdom is doing its expiration as, uh, as oxygen, but that's the inspiration of, uh, of, of us uh, in the mammal world, certainly. So there's no out without an in. Everything exists in reciprocal relationship with everything else. This is the interconnected oneness of being uh, that I'm referring to. This was not the way Jews always thought about God, historically. Uh, um, this, uh, from from my perspective, this is a this is an understanding of the divine that is uh, uh, speaks of radical monism. There's an underlying oneness, but the original concepts about the divine 
uh, that come in, uh, uh, come in Judaism, and I think it's uh, shared with other religious traditions that, uh, that uh, have God at their base, is that uh, God was, was radically other. And if I were to draw it out, I do a longer talk on this, if I were to draw it out, be like we would draw one big circle, and the big circle could represent God, and then everything in the created universe would be a little teeny circle, sort of outside, you have two separate circles. And that's the, that's the old model, that's the, uh, that's the starting place model, I think, for, at least for the Jewish tradition, uh, that God is omni-other, uh, not of this universe. God would maybe the creator of this universe, but not of this universe. But that understanding changed over time. Uh, the, the big leap forward was with the, the book called the Zohar, you probably have, which means splendor. It's a, it was a, sort of the big book of Jewish mysticism. It's, a, it's the one uh, mystical text maybe most people have heard of. Uh, it's the book that Madonna is studying. And with, uh, you know, so people have heard about this book. But the, uh, the, uh, the Zohar made a radical shift from this idea of God being totally other and uh, basically said that uh, God, this totally other uh, took part of God's self. Now these words, this is, uh, these are concepts that don't really apply, but uh, nevertheless, the only way you could speak. So God took part of God's self and used it to make this world. Uh, so that everything in the world, they didn't quite go all the way as, as far as the Baal Shem Tov, the Zohar basically said that some of this God essence then was in the created universe. The Baal Shem Tov took it a much, uh, much further. He said, he's a tall God, there's nothing but God. Uh, there's, uh, there's, there's, there is no other, there's no otherness, just it's all God, everything is God. The way I would uh, map that out, so if I was drawing these circles for you, we'd no longer have two circles. The way, the way I would draw that, metaphorically, we'd have a big circle and inside the big circle would be a little circle. So that, uh, this is a way of saying that uh, everything that is is uh, contained in something bigger that we could call the oneness of being, or you could call it, uh, I'm choosing to call it God. But I'm using that language to refer to something that's, uh, uh, that contains all things, but, uh, but it also leaves space in that model. I think it's say an organic model. So you could imagine that sort of parallel to, uh, if you thought of your own body, so you could think about uh, an organ system in your body as a subsystem of this body, and then within that there's cells. So you could imagine a liver cell so a liver cell has some level of independent existence, a liver cell in my body, for now, has some independent existence, it has a, it has a boundary, and a cell wall, it, it's this liver cell and it's not that liver cell, it's not a heart cell, but it's part of the greater implicate order. I, I heard that word once, I thought it was great. Uh, it's a part of a greater, bigger order that I call me. And I'll get to that mistake later. But, uh, <laughs> But uh, it's part of this body. It's part of sort of the, the oneness of this body. But it also, so it's part of a bigger whole, but it also uh, has a relative separateness. And so the power of this model is that uh, it leaves a space for, uh, for separateness, for relative separateness, and a way of understanding that rel relative separateness uh, fits into some bigger unitive oneness. With that model, with this, uh, the organic model I'd call it, with this model that of the little cell, the little circle inside the big circle, uh, with that model there's a radical shift in, in the goal of spiritual practice. So in, in the model when God is other, the, the goal of spiritual practice used to be to try to get as close to God as possible. But you could never really get all the way there because it's, it's radically other. But you try to get as close to God as possible 
You can't ultimately know God. Uh, and so you had to rely, in the Jewish system, you had to rely on God having given a transmission to, to tell you how to get close. And that's how uh, at least some, uh, some uh, uh, Jewish teachers understand the, the giving of the law, the giving of the Torah, that there was a, some sort of transmission so in this world we'd know how to get closer to God. But in the model I'm working with, which is uh, not a dual, essentially a dualistic model, uh, in that model that you can't get any closer to God. And that, that, that language doesn't really make any sense. Uh, but what does make sense, and the goal for spiritual practice in that model, would be to wake up. To wake up to the truth that that's how it is. Uh, to be able to see clearly. This model of waking up, uh, I think, is a, certainly a, a common shared theme of the Jewish mystical tradition and the Buddhist tradition. So, in fact, the word Buddha means to wake up, uh, means to be awakened. Uh, and and um, at the, in the Jewish mystical tradition, it's also a core teaching. There's a, a, a mystical prayer that's said on Friday night as part of welcoming in the Sabbath and uh, called Lecha Dodi, uh, which means uh, come, with, come, come with me, my beloved. Uh, let's go, my beloved. And uh, in that prayer, there's a, there, one of the stanzas that the mystics uh, use to talk about uh, their understanding of oneness is they give a practice instruction in their prayer which says, hit orari, hit orari, which means wake up, wake up. Kiva uh, orech because the light you're looking for, it's already here. It's in the past tense there, too. So everything you're looking for is already here. Uh, it's why uh, in this approach to practice, the pra approach we're doing here, the, really the teaching is about being rather than becoming, because there's nothing to become. You're already it. Uh, so the point is to wake up to being part of this being. Being, which is the same name for God. That's a name for God, being. Uh, I sat about uh, just a little over a year ago, I did a two-week retreat at a monastery in England uh, where the head monk is uh, Ajahn Samedo. And uh, it was a very, it was a, uh, he's a major lineage holder in the uh, uh, Thai forest tradition of, uh, of Theravadan Buddhism, which is, the, um, which is the lineage that Spirit Rock Buddhism comes out of as well. And, uh, He's a, a major lineage holder. He has, a, he has two monasteries with uh, 30 or 40 monks and nuns who are all uh, sitting, on, sitting under him. But he's very iconoclastic as well. So he's withholding, he's acting within that tradition. But, uh, but he, he says, you know, when I, when I say the word Buddha and the word Dharma, all I mean is uh, that, that just means awakened attention to the truth of all things. The Dharma is just the truth. The Buddha is just awake. So taking refuge in the Buddha and the, and the Dharma just means taking refuge in uh, the possibility of awakening to the truth, the truth of each moment. So he's uh, he was teaching this retreat, and uh, he he uh, quoted a sutta that I had never heard before. So that's a a sutta is a, 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 a teaching from Buddhist scripture. I have to translate that too. So uh, <laughs> so uh, and, and it was a, uh, a I had never heard this sutta before. But the 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 uh, the teaching went. Uh, because there is the unborn, the uncreated, the unformed, the unconditioned, it's possible to awaken here in the realm of the born, the created, the formed, and conditioned. 
Now, this is a teaching about why it's possible to wake up. It's possible to wake up uh, here in this realm, which is born, created, formed, and conditioned, and uh, because of the unborn, the uncreated, the unformed, the unconditioned. That, that there's a reality to that. But the only thing you can say about that reality is, is with un, is the word. You, know, you can't say anything about it. You only say what it's not. It's not this, it's not that, it's not this, it's not that. The same, we have the exact same teaching in two ways in Judaism. The, uh, also about uh, the divine omni other uh, Jewish philosophers also say there's nothing you can say. You, can't, you can only say what it's not. And so we have the exact same teaching. But not only that, that, that particular teaching tracked identically with my Jewish mystical understanding of the four worlds that, uh, and the, the fourfold process that I'm talking about from this divine name, yud heh vav -Hey. Even the language, most of the language is identical too. Uh, the created and formed are the names of these worlds that have to do with these four letters. So that, uh, the point being that that, that teaching uh, exactly parallels, that there's four levels, so to speak, of how, how being unfolds in the reality plane that we can uh, know directly, and then there's something we can't speak about. But even though we can't speak about it, it can be directly experienced. The unborn, the uncreated, the unformed, the unconditioned is not something we can talk about, but it's something that can be directly known. And so the Jewish mystical tradition works on all four of those levels, but it's the same four levels that uh, we are going to be teaching over these days here. The, the four worlds model also tracks almost identically with the four foundations of mindfulness. The Buddha said, in order to wake up, you've got to pay attention to four different kinds of things. And it's the same four different kinds of things that the four worlds model of, with the four letters and the divine name refer to. So we'll be talking about that some more. But actually, we'll be practicing it more than talking about it. So, <clears throat> If everything is God and nothing but God, what's the problem? How come, how come, <laughs> how come we're not awake to that? So we're not, we need to wake up to that, and we're not awake to that. Uh, and that's where I want to spend the rest of the talk, so looking at what the problem is. Why, why aren't we awake? Uh, and so uh, I'd like to start by answering that with another teaching of the Baal Shem Tov, this, the founder of Hasidic thought. So the Baal Shem Tov looked at a verse in Deuteronomy, the fifth book of, of the Torah, fifth book of the Bible. And uh, the verse in Hebrew reads, Anochi omed uh, So it says that, which means in English, I stood between Yudhe this name of God, and you at that time. So here's the picture. Moses, this is, this is a quote from Moses. So in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, uh, who was the supreme prophet and the leader that helped uh, the, uh, uh, the exile, helped to take the Jews out of uh, slavery in Egypt? Uh, he's standing and uh, he's reviewing with the people, the people of Israel. He's standing uh, and talking to them. These sometimes are called his final discourses because it's getting close to the time in the Bible where he's going to die. And he's he's talking to the people. He's reminding them of their journeys and what's happened in the wilderness and uh, and. Uh, and, uh, and reminding them of what, uh, from his perspective, the divine wants from us, wants from, the, wants from them. And, he's, uh, and he says this line, remember when I stood between you and God, between God and you at that time. And the time he's talking about is very, very, really clear. He's talking about the experience at Mount Sinai, which happened earlier in the text. So in the book of Exodus, 
After the Jews leave Egypt and get out of slavery, uh, they go to Mount Sinai, where some peak mystical experience happens, according to the text. So up until that time, Moses is the one who's been the intercessor between God and the, and, uh, and the world, and with God and the Jewish people. He's the one who talks to God face to face, it says. Uh, and <clears throat> but the promise comes that at Mount Sinai, everybody's going to have such an experience. So if you read in the book of Exodus, the, the story starts to unfold, the, the, the divine presence starts to manifest, and then at some point, the people who are not ready for a direct experience of the divine, it seems. Uh, they panic, they get scared. Uh, I think there's actually a direct parallel for our own experience moment by moment, that, that sometimes when, uh, when we start to move out of our normal consciousness, it could be quite scary, especially if the self starts to disappear, uh, the sense of self starts to disappear. The, the, uh, so, in any case, the, 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 the Jewish people panic, they move away, they say to Moses, you go talk to God and tell us what God wants. So now he's, he's reminding them about that. He's saying, remember at that time when I stood between you and God. And the Baal Shem Tov looks at that line in the Torah and he says, that's not what it means. That's, uh, and this is a key, uh, uh, certainly a key piece uh, for anybody who wants to get involved in Judaism and have that involvement include the Torah, which is somewhat optional, but most Jews uh, uh, spend time looking at the Torah. The, the key ingredient to work with the Torah is not to take it only literally. That's always been understood. Every generation uh, does not only take it literally. And so the Baal Shem Tov also says, you know, that's only, that's, on the surface it means Moses is talking to God, but he says what it really means is, because uh, the, the words, Moses isn't part of that verse, it says, I stood between you and God. Baal Shem Tov says, I. It's the sense of I. That's what stands between you and God. It's a, very, it's a direct teaching, certainly a parallel uh, in the teachings of the Buddha. Uh, now, the, the Baal Shem Tov is not saying, he, he's saying the sense of self gets in the way of this understanding that everything is God and nothing but God. He's not saying there's no self, he didn't, but he did say that the self is a problem. But, as I understand it, the Buddha also, ne also never said there is no self. That uh, the, the Buddha, when he's asked directly, is there a self or not, uh, skirts the question. And uh, at least this is what Tan Jeff has taught me. So that, uh, he skirts the question, and, uh, but what he does teach over and over and over again is a phenomenological approach to looking at experience from moment to moment in which you can say, well, this is not the self, and this is not the self, and this is not the self, and this is not the self. Uh, but in any case, the, the, uh, I think in, in both traditions, we're really taught to say that, taught to see that uh, it's, the, uh, it's, a, it's a sense of self which we're the cause of the problem. Uh, the problem being, not that, not that we shouldn't have a sense of self, the problem being feeling a sense of the interconnected oneness of being, which would then uh, impel us to act impeccably, to have our hearts cracked wide open. Uh, So now I want to look at, from a Jewish perspective, uh, uh, how we could deal with this. What, what is the problem? How could we work with the problem? This is actually a, a, a problem. When uh, some of you may know the story, there were a number of rabbis who went over to meet the Dalai Lama. Uh, Roger Kamenis wrote a book about it called The Jew and the Lotus. So there were seven or eight people, uh, mostly friends of ours, who we, we, I mean the rabbis, we know all the rabbis who went. Uh, and. Uh, 
I wish I was in that number. It would have been fun <laughs> to be there. Uh, but it was before I meditated, so probably... Uh, anyways. Um, <laughs> but a lot of the other people went didn't meditate either at that point. So, uh, <laughs> so it's a very interesting exchange, but the, for, for this purpose, uh, at one point the Dalai Lama turned to the, to the, uh, the, to the Jewish uh, contingent that was there and said, well, does Judaism have a way of dealing with afflictive mind states? And he sort of asked the point, like, that's what, that's what we're talking about tonight, afflictive mind states, uh, things that get in the way of feeling the oneness. And uh, I don't remember, what, I actually don't remember what, what the book said the answer was, but, uh, or what they said at that point. But uh, uh, Judaism does have ways of dealing with afflictive mind states, but it's not like you can't find somewhere the book of afflicted mind states, you know, as a <laughs> Jewish book or something, you know. So you have to, you have to pull out uh, from different sources things that all do, in fact, help deal with afflictive mind states. Uh, so I'm, when I get to the, towards the end of the talk, I'm going to talk about seven steps. Seven, and at least three of them have very strong Jewish components in them, uh, explicitly Jewish components. So I'll, I'll just mention that at the time. But, so I want to deal with this idea of afflictive mind states. <clears throat> so the first time, actually, when I was teaching with Sylvia and Sheila, and I was going to give a talk about afflictive mind states. Uh, I wanted to give that talk from a Jewish perspective. So the, the, uh, the uh, Jewish teaching that came to mind that would be the closest to uh, working with that explicitly was the concept of the Yetzer Hara, which is translated as the evil inclination. That according to Jewish tradition, uh, all of us as human beings have inside of us an evil inclination. That's how I first learned this teaching, that we have an evil inclination inside. And when I learned of that teaching, I, I never liked it at all. I, I, uh, I think it's because I understood it from a dualistic perspective. So it was like, oh, there's this little imp inside, you know, there's this little devil inside of me saying, yeah, do that bad thing, go for it. You know? uh, so, and I didn't like that, that didn't, that didn't ring true to me. Uh, so even in putting this talk together, but it, but it seemed like it was on the right topic. The, the, the force that sort of moves us to act uh, in ways that we would consider to be evil, the evil inclination. So I started uh, thinking about that, that topic and researching it uh, from a Jewish point of view and looking at how it appears in the, te in, in the Bible, where, where, the, where that teaching comes from. Uh, my friend Sheila helped us. I'll mention in a minute that uh, uh, gave me a really important insight at one point in putting that talk together. So, but the first thing I had to deal with was, uh, you know, I didn't like it. I didn't, I didn't really like the idea of an evil inclination. Uh, and as I uh, poured over that, I, I remembered another story, uh, that, uh, a teaching tale that I would use from time to time, where this idea, because uh, I did know that uh, we also are told we have a good inclination. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't that we were all, uh, only evil, although later on you'll see that uh, there's some question about that. Uh, but, but the way I did learn it there, we also had a good inclination. So an evil inclination and a good inclination. Uh, and so when I was trying to make sense of that, uh, I remember this other story that had a sort of those same words of good and evil as a parallel that uh, gave me a hint. This is where I, I started to uh, see it differently. Uh, and that story was about the good angel and the evil angel. But at least, so you know, you have a good angel, evil angel, a little bit like the good inclination and the evil inclination. So the story about the good angel and the evil angel is that uh, uh, on Friday afternoon, 
uh, as a teaching tale, we're told that, or, or you can take it more literally if you'd like, that uh, two angels come to visit every Jewish household. Two angels come every Friday afternoon. And one's the good angel, and one's the evil angel. There's a, there's a, uh, we still have a tradition in uh, Jewish houses to sing a song called Shalom Aleichem, which means welcome you angels, welcome unto you. Uh, and there's a w welcoming song for the angels. So this is a story. What angels are you talking about? That comes. Uh, this story says there's a good angel and an evil angel, and they come to every Jewish household. So if the house Friday afternoon, is a if the house is a mess, and uh, clearly the people aren't paying any attention to the fact that the Sabbath is coming, uh, and the uh, uh, the kids are upstairs uh, watching television, and uh, they're not they're not going to eat together, uh, uh, and uh, everybody's yelling at everybody in the household. And, and, uh, then the evil angel says, may next Shabbat be like this Shabbat. <laughs> but on the other hand, if the house is uh, clearly prepared for the Sabbath, uh, that the, the, uh, all the food has been cooked ahead of time so that people can be present for the dinner and not have to be running around doing anything, and people have changed their clothes to sort of signify that they want to move themselves into a different space, and maybe, maybe the only time that week the family is, is sitting down, but they are sitting down to a meal together, and and the candles are lit, and they're talking about what happened in the week, and, uh, and there's even a custom that the parents should bless the kids, then the good angel says, may next Shabbos be like this Shabbos. So the good angel and the evil angel say exactly the same thing. Uh, that's a, that's a, a non-dualistic understanding. A angels are just messengers. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the truth of that experience is, uh, uh, angel or no angel, uh, every moment is going to be like the next moment. That's how it works. The likelihood is the next moment will be like this moment. That's just a truth. Any angel could tell you that. A good angel, an evil <laughs> angel. Yeah. So I figured if the angels are the same, must be the same. It must be the Yates or the, the evil inclination and the good inclination must also be the same. That's not, it must not be two different things. I, I remember saying that to Sheila. Uh, it must be that way. And she said, yeah, well, don't you remember? It? Or, uh, well, she said, I don't know exactly what she said, but she said uh, <laughs> that, uh, yeah, the rabbis understood that there's only one inclination. So if you look in the Midrash, which are the rabbinic legends about the Torah stories, if you look in the rabbinic legend, when they talk about the, the inclination, there the rabbis say, <clears throat> without, the, without the yetzer, without the inclination, nobody would build a house, have a career, or have a family. And they don't say good or evil. So, so that was the teaching that Sheila pointed out to me, which, was, which confirmed this idea that, oh, there's just an, there's just an inclination. Now, we have an inclination. I've been sharing this in my group today with group interviews. I think that basic inclination that every one of us as human beings have is that if something is pleasant, if something comes into our nervous system that's pleasant, the basic inclination of every human being is to go, yeah, I want that. I want that right now. I always want that. I want to get more of that. Uh, uh, that's great. I like that. And if the uh, if what comes into your uh, field of awareness is unpleasant, the basic yetzer, the basic inclination of a human being, is to go, uh-uh, I don't like that at all. You know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want that ever to happen. I got to stop. You know, I got to stop that. I got to stop whoever it is that's bringing it. I got to get rid of it. I got to get rid of them. Uh, so this is the basic inclination. So I looked in the text though, to, 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 to keep uh, pursuing this, to see if that if it made sense to understand it that way. And uh, so there are, th there are three texts I'll, I'll quickly mention. 
the first time this whole idea of a Yetzer comes is right in that same verse. Remember I was saying the verse about how God f uh, formed human beings from the dust of the earth and then breathed into the dust of the earth? So when it says God formed human beings from the dust of the earth, the word that is used in Hebrew, which means formed, is vayitzar, which just means and he, and he formed. But the word, when it's written in the Bible, has the letter yud, uh, that sound y uh, in yetzer, so it's the y sound in that word, in inclination. Uh, the, word, the letter appears twice, the letter yud. And in Hebrew, it's a, it's a completely extra letter. You don't need two yuds in that word to make that word be vayitzer. So, the rabbis, when they look at the text like that and they see two yuds, uh, and they, they have to explain why the extra yud is there. And so they, that's the, where they first say this, this idea, oh, that's because when, there was the, when the formation happened, it was a double formation. And the human beings were formed with a yetzer atov and a yetzer hara, an evil inclination and a good inclination. So they sort of draw it from that text. Uh, but so that's the first reference even to that double idea of a good inclination, evil inclination. <coughs> and then, uh, then uh, comes the, in the beginning stories of Genesis, <clears throat> you know, right away early on comes the story of Noah, Noah and the flood. So in, uh, Noah lived at a time when uh, it seemed that everybody was evil. It was, a, it was a generation of evil people. According to the Torah, so Noah was the only righteous one. So Noah and his family have to save the world and save humanity by building an ark because God's going to destroy the world. <clears throat> I think it's sort of interesting that, uh, that I, I, even, I even like the metaphor of uh, thinking about the evil inclination in connection with the flood story. It's, it's, it's almost a way of saying that, yeah, these energies we're talking about, this inclination is so powerful, it like floods you. I think, I think it's really sort of tied into that whole imagery you know, uh, of a flood, even though the flood was sort of what's going to save you, uh, or save humanity. But, uh, it's a good flood to sort of overwhelm the bad flood of evil that's in the world. So there are two verses where this Yetzer comes. And this is where the explicit idea of an evil inclination, there are two verses where it's mentioned. So the first one, in Genesis uh, chapter 6, verse 5, it says, V'kal Yetzer machshavat libo rak ra kol hayom, which means, it says, the entire inclination of the thoughts of the heart are only evil all the time. Doesn't seem like it even leaves any room for a good inclination. The entire inclination of the thoughts of the heart are only evil all the time. And then two chapters later in, uh, in chapter 8, it says, Kietzer lev hadam ramin arav. It says that the inclination of the heart of a human, of a person, is evil uh, from childhood on. You know, from, also doesn't seem to leave any room uh, for a good inclination. So. I, uh, I don't like it either, right? So, so, so I, I, I pour over these words and say, now what, what's it really trying to say there? So uh, in the first one, where it says the, the, the entire inclination of the thoughts of the heart. Ah, there's, my, there's the clue there. It doesn't say the heart is evil. It says the thoughts of the heart. The thoughts, I think, uh, the thoughts are just, that's just the truth of, uh, of, this, of the inclination. When... Uh, when, we get an in, when, when something pleasant arises, that's where the mind goes. It goes just sort of automatically, the thoughts of the mind. So now we're, now we're really talking about the cortex and how it's responding to the limbic system. I think the inclination itself is just the, it's just the limbic system. We all have these as parts of our brain. Uh, 
It's not that it's bad that we want to get rid of unpleasant things. That's just the way, that's the way our nervous system is constructed with the different, different areas of the brain. So we have a limbic system. It says go for it. That's what the limbic system does. I think uh, it's sometimes also called the reptilian brain, right? The limbic system. I think it's the snake. The snake in the, in the story of Genesis. The snake is just the limbic brain. This is just sort of a, a true description of how human, what it's like to be a human being. We all have this snake inside us called the limbic brain, called the reptilian brain. And if it's something's good, like an apple, just go for it. You know? uh, if it's not good, get rid of it. That's, so it's always saying that. That's always happening. The problem is not that. The problem is in what the cortex does. The problem is that we then start to ideate all sorts of plans uh, to get rid of the things that are bothering, get rid of the people that are bothering us. And, uh, uh, and so it's the thoughts of the heart where we need to pay attention. Uh, not uh, uh, And the next verse as well, that when it says the, uh, that the inclination of the heart, here it doesn't say th- thoughts, so here it says the inclination of the heart of a human is evil from childhood on. I think you could, uh, instead of translating it from childhood, I think you could, uh, I think it'd be fair to call it from childish consciousness, really. I think it's, uh, a na'ar is also as, as, a, as a youth, but a na'ar in, uh, in Yiddish means a, 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 somebody is a fool. So it really means naivete, I think, that the inclination of the heart of a human being is evil because of naivete. But as soon as you realize that this is how it works, that you have a limbic brain, and now you watch, if you watch carefully, this is where mindfulness comes in, if you watch carefully and understand, oh, of course the limbic brain is going to say, go for it, and then, uh, and then you watch the cortex start to, to ideate and create ideas, uh, then you, then you see how the, then, then you're not naive about that. You understand how it works. If you understand how it works, then you can use that energy of the limbic brain to build a house, to have a career, to get married. Uh, if you don't see how it works, if you're naive about it, so then the, if, you, if, you, if you're not naive, with, with mindfulness, the Yetzer becomes the Yetzer Atov. The inclination becomes the inclination towards good with mindfulness. Without mindfulness, that inclination operates unconsciously, naively, naivete, Childish consciousness, which is part unconscious, says go for it, you know, get rid of the bad stuff. Childish consciousness is 100% black and white consciousness. So if we don't, if, we are, if we're naive about it, then, then it's going to operate as the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination. So uh, now I want to talk even further about what to do about that, how to use this practice that we're working with together to deal with uh, this situation. Uh, the, the very nature of what it means to be a human being. So the, the first step, and this is clearly a step in mindfulness uh, practice, is to watch for these states arising. So there's the, the, and the particular states uh, that I, uh, I think we can uh, watch for uh, are greed, I've already said that, and, uh, and aversion. So those are the, you know, I want it, I want it pleasant, I want to get rid of it. So those are the, the two big ones. There's a third one that is, is usually, uh, which is uh, just as powerful and uh, maybe in some ways more invidious, which is uh, a quality called doubt. Uh, 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 doubt is sometimes called slippery mind uh, because doubt sort of masquerades as the good guy. So it convinces you to do something which is not so good, but, it, but, but somehow convinces you why you should do that. Uh, and it seems like it's good. So. Uh, Ajahn Sumedho had a great line about that I hadn't heard before when I sat with him last May. He said, he said doubt really is just compulsive thinking. 
if you just if you think if you just think and think and think, you can think of both sides of every issue, uh, and, and then you can convince yourself with enough thinking, you know, that anything's okay. So, so he th he just calls it too much thinking uh, as a way of working with doubt. But in any case, and I'm, I'm going to leave out for this purpose, uh, there's two other energies usually talked about which do in fact cloud the mind as well, sleepiness and restlessness. We talked about sleepiness early already today, but it does get in the way of seeing clearly. So uh, we can't see the interconnected oneness of being when we can't see anything. <laughs> you know? uh, so when the mind, and, and restlessness, these are both sort of energy states of the mind, whereas the other three are more, I think of them more as a, as a mental machination, sort of. So there's also this energy state of restlessness, which makes it hard to focus on anything, because the mind is all over the place. But, uh, but with all of them, those two as well, as, and, and plus these three, the main ones I'm thinking about, of doubt and greed and aversion. So the, the very first step in mindfulness is to uh, watch for them arising. You, have to, you actually have to, you have to try to catch them. Uh, you have to try to notice when they're present which in some ways calls for general mindfulness. Uh, uh, but there are some cues you can use. Uh, if you want to know whether, uh, uh, whether one of these states has arisen, uh, you could watch for any of the sort of hyphenated self things, like self-aggrandizement, self-centered, selfish, uh, self-serving. If anything like that is going on, probably one of these energies is, is uh, clouding your mind. And that, that's where it, where it starts to sort of overlap with this, the teaching of the Buddha, the teaching of the Baal Shem Tov. You have to look at the nature of the self. Yeah. So those are the cues you want to look for. And that's, the, that's uh, in some ways the first step. Uh, although there may be some steps that can help that as well, some, that support that. So uh, a second step, and it doesn't necessarily have to be exactly in this order, but a second step would be to uh, as these energies arise, to practice restraint. So this is, uh, actually, this is a spiritual practice. So when an energy like lust arises, you practice restraint. Uh, when an aversive energy arises, you practice restraint. You don't, just, you don't immediately act it out. Uh, this, is where, uh, this is where mindfulness uh, comes in. One of my favorite teachings from Sylvia is that uh, through mindfulness, we can, uh, we can learn to respond to life rather than to react to life. So, the, with the inclination, when the inclination arises, we normally react. As soon as mindfulness is in there, which takes some restraint, uh, coming before the action, uh, then there's a possibility of responding rather than reacting. So we want to practice restraint. That's one of the ones I said when I said there are three things that Judaism for sure had explicitly. Uh, re restraint practice is a huge piece of the spiritual practice of Judaism, and restraint practice is a great practice uh, for human beings. Uh, my wife, Joanna, used to, every so often, she'll find a saying that she really loves, and then she'll um, write it down and put it on the refrigerator so we can see it all the time, every day. And so for, for one, year, the, one year, the posting was, restraint points to the impermanent nature of desire. That's a great teaching. So, uh, and, uh, so restraint itself uh, gives you the space to work with these qualities. So, uh, so you want to name the quality, you want to practice restraint, And then as you, uh, as you uh, notice, the pr notice one of these energies arising, practice restraint, it's also helpful to name. We talked about naming a little bit today. Uh, that uh, there is a function where the actual na where naming itself helps to tame the beast. 
And I think you could draw that, uh, you could also draw that as a practice instruction from these same texts in Genesis. So right after the God breathed into the depths of the earth and formed the human being, uh, it says the, uh, it's not good for the human being to be alone. So God wants to provide a helpmate for the human being. And the way God provides a helpmate, according to the Torah, it says uh, God parades all the beasts of the field before Adam. And in order to make the beast a helpmate, he's told to name them. That's actually a real practice instruction right there. You know, if, you, if beasts come and you name the beast, it tames the beast. Naming the beast t- tames the beast is a way to try to make the beast a helpmate. And this is, it's really helpful uh, uh, to know, oh, I'm really lusting right now. <laughs> you know? oh, I'm, there's a lot of anger going on right now. This is, oh, this is anger. Because you know? uh, without that, uh, the mind just goes into like, you know, it's your fault. <laughs> but that's the problem. The problem is out there. Uh, the, uh, I'm going to get to that point in a minute. Uh, so naming, naming is an important practice. So you want to recognize these things, you need to practice some restraint so that then you can work with it, you want to name it. And then the next step, which is really crucial, uh, is, uh, I would say, is uh, being with. It's called being with. So, uh, which means, uh, and this is the part that's pretty, uh, it's uh, counterintuitive, to, or it's certainly counter to what you want to do as a human being. So, because your limbic brain is going to say, oh, that's an unpleasant thing, get away. <laughs> Go away from that. Don't let that get anywhere near me. Don't think about that. You know, let's do something else. Uh, let's divert the attention. So, uh, but instead we want to learn to be with the, uh, the experience that's happening. Oh, this is really unpleasant. Uh, anger is here right now. When we get to that stage, we haven't, we've sort of, we're, we're, we're going to approach that uh, in, as we give the instructions for practice. We're, but we don't start right there, because first we wanted to bring some calm and composure into the mind uh, through uh, resting the attention on the breath. And we also want to learn, uh, the reason we're doing the practice in this order too, is that we're paying attention to the breath as a somatic experience. So we're learning to try to go out of the mental level and in, into the body level. And that's a crucial ability to have when you're going to start working with these states, because you want to get out of the story of anger, which says, get rid of that person, <laughs> and instead go like, oh, I'm really angry. What does that feel like in my body? And that's where you move away from the story. You drop into the body with this teaching of, with mindfulness, pay attention to the body, and you start to feel what this energy feels like in the body. There's a few great things that happen when you do that which don't happen if you avoid it, which don't happen if you're allowing, if you're naive about it or you just uh, try to get away every time something unpleasant arises. The first thing is, uh, you're not in order. So one thing is, uh, you, you notice this energy is arising, anger is here, anger is here, and by and by, if you sit with it long enough, restraint points to the impermanent nature of all these things. So you start to learn impermanence. Uh, these are feelings that come and they go. Uh, by and large. So the, the ang- you're angry, you're angry, angry, and you're thinking about dinner. You're not, you're not angry anymore. It's just, it's just gone, you know. Uh, so when that happens, that's a great teaching, because then you, you do see actually that these states which you were so afraid to even face, and then you can't, can't deal with that, it just it comes and goes all by itself. So, uh, so that's one possibility. Another possibility is You sit with this energy and you sit with this energy. If you make it the primary object of focus for your meditation practice, you actually get the mind get quite concentrated. And as the mind gets quite concentrated, sometimes as, a, as an effect of that, 
you move back into an expanded, sta an expansive state, an open-hearted state, and uh, and the energy uh, sometimes it just it stays there, but it's not compelling. It's not. It doesn't. Uh, you don't have to get rid of it. You're, you feel fine, and there's some unpleasant thing around, but uh, you can actually get quite concentrated through these unpleasant states. And then perhaps best of all is that uh, you actually can. Uh, use when you when you when you pay attention your body's trying to tell you something when these energies are around so actually when you pay attention instead of turning your attention away uh, that's when the energy uh, uh, changes over into some useful thing uh, uh, certainly possibly through the nature of insight that an insight arises that what sylvia was calling a revelation this morning when you're just with the unhappiness you get some sort of revelation about or some insight about what's going on so you, it may turn from being completely angry at your partner, right? Anger has arisen, anger has arisen. You sit with the anger. Uh, by and by, anger is always a secondary reaction anyways. A second, and I call it emotional reaction. And uh, if you sit with the anger, generally, that, just that alone is enough to drop into the next level that's deeper. And that's an insight, too. It's not, it's not so much that you're angry, it's that you're hurt, or you're sad, or scared. Uh, so you first, you get, you get a little closer to the truth of what's really going on. And then you sit with sad or lonely or scared and uh, and you realize uh, oh that's just what I felt like when my mother ignored me but it's not so much about my partner <laughs> you know it's just triggering this old feeling inside that's an insight that's a revelation because it, it diffuses uh, how pissed you are at your partner uh, so th these are really th and and then this that ex this actually becomes the compost for your growth it's like wow you learn something you see something you're wiser about it uh, you understand why you get so unhappy uh, and with the wisdom, uh, uh, there's actually more happiness, uh, that it doesn't affect you in quite the same way. So that's the composting function, and it actually becomes something that leads to your spiritual growth. All of those are in the, in the categories, another teaching I got from Sylvia, a pithy, another pithy line of... Uh, that the basic practice of mindfulness is whatever arises, don't duck. <laughs> so that's, that's the practice I've just been outlining. So sometimes it's wise to duck. But it's, but it's really crucial, uh, 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 and I wouldn't really call it ducking, but sometimes it's wise to, ch to change directions and not take the direct approach. One time it's good to do that is... Uh, because is that sometimes when you do this direct approach, uh, you get whatever insights you can, uh, you get as much awareness as you can, and then at some point, sometimes it, uh, the mind starts to wilt in the face of these energies. You know, uh, you start losing traction. So the mind starts getting even louder, uh, and uh, so you work it as much as you can, and then you say to yourself, and the intention in this move is the crucial thing. You say to yourself. All right, I'm going to shift into a different practice now in the service of rebuilding some calm and rebuilding some composure so that I can deal with this situation in my life that comes uh, with uh, more ability. So sometimes it's wise to then uh, turn around and, and do some of the other practices that we've referred to and that we'll, someone will be teaching tomorrow. So you can use some sort of blessing practice where you start to cultivate a wholesome mind states instead. Uh, so Sylvia will do a teaching about that tomorrow. Uh, uh, there's uh, many of you have learned metta practice in the Buddhist world. These are these are there are ways of contemplative practice that actually uh, uh, sweeten the mind. That's another phrase I got from Sylvia. That 
that uh, bring the mind into a little more balance and harmony. And those are really valuable to use at certain times. That's another range of practices that was, uh, that there, there's a lot of practices like that in Judaism. That there's a, there are a lot of practices that are intended to help create a wholesome state of mind. Prayer practices like that. You know, uh, saying hallelujah, saying blessings. Uh, those are practices that also help with afflictive mind states. I think, and, and especially when they're part of a package that includes whatever arises, don't duck. And it's not good, because you need to do the wisdom piece as well. Otherwise, if you only do the uh, part of sweetening the mind, then you're, then you're cultivating aversion and, and you're not going to get wise about it. And the first time those, the conditions arise again that uh, led to the difficult mind states, they'll just rise again because you won't have gained any skill in working with them. And the final thing is, uh, uh, is sort of in the face of all that, when, when we're lost, uh, when we're not awake to the fact that it's all God, nothing but God, it's good to have a set of ethical pra- practices and precepts to do. Sort of Like when you're awake, you would only act ethically in the world. But when you're not awake, it's good to have a set of rules to follow. Uh, that's another place where Judaism was strong. Act this way, and, and, and not only Judaism, obviously, but you know, act this way and act this way and act that way. There is a parallel, because so, when one acts impeccably and, and, and ethically, the difficult states do arise less. Uh, so so it, does, it is a way of dealing with afflictive mind states, sort of before they arise, by, uh, by helping them not arise. So those were the practices I wanted to, uh, to share with you tonight. So I just want to close with uh, a blessing then coming out of this, these teachings. So uh, may we and all beings who are all part of the holy oneness of being, all be blessed with peace. May we and all beings, part of the holy oneness of being, be blessed with joy. May we and all beings, all part of the holy oneness of being, be blessed with loving kindness. And may we and all beings, part of the oneness of being, be blessed with compassion. Let's just sit for one minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.